Well, good afternoon. Thank you for coming. Um, my name is Seth Cropsey. I'm senior fellow here at Hudson and director of Hudson Center for American Sea Power. Uh, and I'm enjoying this water here, or will, from uh, one of our sponsors, Aqua Carpatica. Right. And I hope you will, too. Uh, Secretary of State Tramba, uh, other distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon and welcome to this conference in cooperation with Romania's New Strategy Center. The conference is on emerging tensions in the Black Sea and why the region is important to the West. The United States and the West are facing challenges today that appeared to dissipate at the end of the Cold War. But like tensions in the Earth's crust that result in volcanic eruptions or earthquakes, such challenges are always with us. When the Soviet Union collapsed, these pressures relaxed momentarily. Then Russia experienced a brief experiment with a more democratic form of government. To the surprise of very few people, this ended. Russia's immediate neighbors, those more distant in Western Europe, and now the US are witnessing a return to tension and in some cases conflict. That great French observer of American democracy, Alexis de Tocqueville, argued over 180 years ago that the United States and Russia were, as he said, the two great nations of the world. He said that each of them, this is a quote, seems marked out by the will of heaven to sway the destinies of half the globe. Tocqueville added that Americans struggle against the obstacles of nature. Uh, the conquest of the West was in its early years when he wrote. And he said that the adversaries of the Russians are men. He, uh, permit me a small quote here. The Anglo-American relies upon personal interests to accomplish his ends and gives free scope to the unguided strength and common sense of the people, the Russian centers all the authority of society in a single arm. The conquests of the American are therefore gained with the plowshare, the plow, those of the Russian by the sword. So some things have changed since Tocqueville wrote, where our American Ancestors killed wild animals so that they could farm. There are some today among us who seek to replace the farms with wild animals. Tocqueville foresaw the changes that would come and wrote about them elsewhere in his book where he accurately described American democracy's contest between liberty and security. But some things are exactly as they were in 1835. Russia centers the authority of society in a single arm, and the sword, or its threat, 
remains central to Russian policy, both domestic and external. Does this matter to the U.S. and Europe and its European allies? The answer is yes. Europe is the western terminus of a landmass that stretches from the Pacific to the Atlantic Ocean. The Eurasian landmass narrows to a peninsula where the old Soviet Union bordered its former Warsaw Pact states. To its narrowing peninsula is bordered by the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. To its north, the Baltic and North Seas. Russia has access to all the waters between these large bodies. They provide Russia with strategic depth and a maritime theater for projecting power within and beyond the region. To the north, Russian access to the seas is a passageway that could support amphibious operations against the Baltic states or Poland and does support Russian submarines transit into the open Atlantic Ocean. But it is the south where most of Russia has concentrated most of its military operations. Putin attacked Georgia in 2008 and recognized two of Georgia's provinces as independent states. Six years later, Russian troops annexed Crimea. There followed Russian combat operations in southeastern Ukraine, which continue this day. In nearby Moldova and more distant Azerbaijan, Russia seeks additional gain, exploiting ethnicity or identity in service of Moscow's revanchist goals. In 2015, Russia began its combat operations in support of Hafez al-Assad's criminal regime in Syria. Russian warships and tactical aircraft now operate out of Syrian bases. Russian warships and tactical aircraft operate out of Crimea in the Black Sea. Last week, as some of you may have noticed, Russian fighters armed with missiles flew dangerously and unprofessionally close to the U.S. Navy's maritime patrol aircraft uh, in the international, over the international waters of the Black Sea. The Russian foreign and military policy understands the strategic unity of the Black Sea and the Eastern Mediterranean theaters. Turkey, a NATO ally, albeit a dubious one, has borders on both bodies of water. Russia's objective of gaining its position as a major external Middle Eastern power is advanced as its warships and supply vessels pass through the Dardanelles. Russia's ruler shares this understanding with the medieval Venetians, whose string of bases in the Aegean allowed their extensive commercial ventures in the states that border the Black Sea. The Eastern Mediterranean is important not only because of the likelihood that the Middle East will remain in turmoil. It is also important because of the large hydrocarbon deposits that have been discovered so far in the waters from Cyprus to Israel to Egypt. As this energy begins to make its way to market, Russian influence in the region further solidifies its leverage locally and at possible delivery points in Europe. The Black Sea is not only the entranceway to the Mediterranean, 
It is bordered by many states that the USSR controlled and where its successor, Russia, would like to resume its former position. NATO's future is a part of this mix. Romania is now a member, as is Bulgaria. What happens with Ukraine and Georgia's interest in NATO membership is the discussion for another time. Unarguable is that both states look west for protection against an aggressive neighbor. In short, the Black Sea region is a large piece on the field of competition in which Russia has chosen to contend with the West. There, NATO's southeastern flank meets Russia's southwesternmost region. The great game of influence, oil and natural gas discoveries, transportation routes that China seeks to Europe and the consequences of Middle Eastern violence meet in one place, the Black Sea. The issues raised are as important to the future of our distinguished speakers here today as they are to American foreign policy's longstanding, large, overarching strategic goal of preventing Eurasia's domination by any nation. It's Hudson Institute's honor today to welcome Romania's Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs, George Chamba, uh, Ben Oni Ardelian, Vice Chairman of Parliament's Committee on Foreign Affairs, Lorenzo Pacchio, Advisory Board Member of the Energy Policy Group, and Cosmin Yanitsa, Director of Research for the New Strategy Center and Professor of History at the University of Ugarest. As originally planned, Julian Fote is not able to be with us today. He's an old friend, and we wish him well. George Chamba will offer an official Romanian perception on the challenges generated by the growing tension in the wider Black Sea area. He will discuss the region's broad challenges and the importance of NATO and the EU's stabilizing role. And here, uh, a small point. Uh, Minister Chamba has uh, an appointment on Capitol Hill that may intersect with this meeting, so uh, we'll see about uh, offering uh, the possibility for asking him questions for the floor, but also make sure that he's able to get to, you're able to get to your meeting on Capitol Hill. Um, Ben Ardelian will look at vulnerabilities of the states in the wider Black Sea area. He'll discuss Romania's role as a stable and predictable partner in the region. He will look specifically at Russia's challenge and focus on its challenges to NATO, including the Black Sea's militarization. Lorenzo Pacchio will examine the difficulties of ensuring energy security in the wider Black Sea area. He'll discuss how energy security in the region represents both a challenge and an opportunity as it provides countries in the region with the opportunity to increase cooperation, decrease dependence on Russia, and develop mutual trust. Kosminio Nietzsche will evaluate constants and variables in the wider Black Sea area. For example, the so-called frozen conflicts, as well as their threat to peace in the region. To look at how the Black Sea has been contested throughout history and discuss the consequences if the West does not maintain balance in the area. 
Just a, a small administrative note, and I'll turn over the podium or the chair to Minister Chamba. After our guests speak, there will be time for questions from the floor. It might be intermittent, but there will be time. Please form your question in the form of a question. Say so. I'm not looking for addresses from the audience. We're looking for questions. Uh, and please identify yourself as well as the organization that you represent and to whom your question is directed. Um, and final note, uh, there are copies of uh, the report, an updated report that Hudson and the New Strategy Center uh, produced that um, I believe are outside, and I urge and encourage you to pick one up and read it on the way out. Thank you. Um, Minister Chamba, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. Should I go and stand up? As you wish. I think would be. I try to stand up or to be more relaxed, how, how you prefer. I think, you know, it's going to be a formal presentation. But in a way, I think it's going to be a friendly one. First of all, let me thank you, Seth, for organizing the debate and for the Hudson Institute for doing together with the National Security Center. I think this is a major initiative for highlighting the importance of the Black Sea and, in a way, the importance of the areas around Romania. It's a, it's a great highlight for my country, and I think it's a way to explain you know, uh, different issues that are related with the Black Sea that, you know, are not only about history or geography, are about geostrategic, geostrategics. Uh, it's, uh, we are, I'm quite happy to be in a, I'm very happy to be here in a panel together with all my distinguished colleagues and to speak about the Black Sea, the Black Sea region. As you, as you already stated, you know, the Black Sea represented a cornerstone for the international security in many different historical periods. And I think you mentioned some of them. Geography and geopolitics offer much of uh, the details of it. The Black Sea represents an interconnection of Europe with Central Asia and the Middle East, and via the Turkish tries to the Eastern Mediterranean and North Africa. Therefore, already to the extent that these areas matter to key international actors, and they really do, the Black Sea has a value-added, strategic value-added, although the actual challenge is how to make best use of it towards a, a constructive paradigm that would reject power politics and would be based on a win-win type of approach. The Black Sea, in the same time, has a huge potential in terms of building energy corridors between the Central Asia and Central Europe, you know, the Silk Road passes by. Uh, this would have a tremendous contribution to the energy security. And uh, we are speaking both about diversification of sources and diversification of routes for Europe. And I think I will have some colleague that be very specific on the energy issue. And uh, I am looking forward and should be looking forward to his intervention. I think we are uh, they, uh, in the, this is the rosy part of the story. I think now we should look into not so great one, which is uh, that the events in the recent years have significantly undermined the venues for cooperation in the region, changing the larger balance of power between major actors and dramatically prompting the Black Sea to the forefront of EU's and NATO's security concerns. 
major challenges occur, uh, occur uh, has have come out of a multiplication of threats. Well, now we are coming back to the time that we are going to speak a lot more about classical threats than you know about what was asymmetrical threats a couple of years ago. Now it's a lot more classical discussion about security. And I think in the Black Sea you can see security in pure form, security as it used to be. Uh, changes have had important repercussions for the interests. Oh, and of course, you know, of the end values held important by the major players, US, EU, Russia, and uh, of course, as well, the interconnection between, the them, between them. I think now it's more about security than it was 10 years ago, and it's more about security and military capabilities. I think it's not as much as it should on the economic and uh, on the cooperation and economic opportunities. Still, I think it's one of the regions of the world that economically is not interconnected as it should. I think connecting the dots was a major task, mission that we had to accomplish that was not done so. Uh, and I think this, is, this as well had, uh, had effects on the security of the area. I think that uh, you know, for Romania, the stability of the Black Sea region by increasing and diversifying its connections with the EU and the Euro-Atlantic world have been you know, one of the main themes of Romania's foreign policy for close to the last two decades. Since our accession to NATO and the EU, we try to raise the awareness in both organizations about the opportunities as well as the challenges in the Black Sea region based on the facts already mentioned. The security challenges in the Black Sea are of strategic importance for all of our, our allies from NATO and especially, I think, for the United States of America. Taking a closer look, the Black Sea is an area where military force has been used by Russia twice in the last 10 years, in Ukraine and in Georgia in 2008. I think that, you know, the stability and security of the region has been affected by the illegal annexation of the Crimea. I think uh, what is even more of concern is this heavy militarization uh, that we are facing right now. And of course, uh, I think the events in Eastern Ukraine as well have a contribution of bringing more, uh, less security and you know, giving a feeling of insecurity in the area surrounding the Black Sea and for all the countries repairing to the Black Sea. Already we have protected conflicts in the Republic of Moldova, Transnistria, of course, between Armenia and Azerbaijan, Nagorno-Karabakh and in Georgia, Abkhazia. South Ossetia. And uh, they be, some of these became hot in some moment in time. And this shows that, you know, that, uh, you know, wh what the dangers are arising from having so many black holes in this such, uh, such, a, such a geography that surrounds Romania. Today, the strategic security outlook continues to deteriorate in the Black Sea. There is Further evidence that in addition to strengthening the sovereignty of Ukraine, Georgia and Republic of Moldova, you know, there are different actors that want to do more about controlling navigation in the Black Sea maritime space. I think it's important that NATO is protecting its communication lines and it's important for all the countries of the region that, you know, we keep all the energy and transportation routes open. Uh, in the same time, I think there is... Uh, uh, this area and the Black Sea itself has been used as a platform to project the military force in other regions. I think it's, uh, we have in the area uh, centered on Crimea, the Russian Black Sea fleet, 
which intends to alter the meteor balance in the region and beyond. Uh, I think that, uh, in a way, this is why it's so important to continue to address the public sea, the Black Sea from the perspective of its impact on the entire Euro-Atlantic security and should not be seen only as, uh, as a regional issue. We think that we need a robust engagement of the United States in this region and a robust engagement of NATO as, our mem as we are a member of, of course, under the guarantees offered by the current treaties. I don't think that it's about trying to go against the treaties and trying to create another framework. I think we have a legal framework that is one of the cornerstone of stabilities when it comes to the Black Sea, and this is the Montreal Convention. I think that we should do more, but in uh, under the boundaries of the existing international law norms. I think that we need more uh, NATO focus on the Black Sea. I think that, you know, we should counterbalance south, east-south with east-north in terms of the engagement of NATO. Uh, uh, NATO, uh, NATO, you know, should be looking not only at the Black Sea, should be on, should be looking as well on the security of the, all the allies that are around the Black Sea, and of course all the allies are on the eastern flank. I think that we should point out that the NATO summit declaration adopted in Wales and Warsaw acknowledge the value of the Black Sea as an important component of the Euro-Atlantic security. I should go further, you know, I think Black Sea is one of the small pieces of puzzle when it comes to Eurasia, and I think this is how we should look into the Black Sea, that, you know, if you want to build stability, on an arch going further east, going to Eurasia, I think it's very important to start by stabilizing, stabilizing the region and the, re the region of the Black Sea, which is the first outpost on the way to the east. Uh, Romania considers that NATO presence in the region has to take into consideration the above-mentioned changes to the strategic environment. Uh, I'm speaking here about the long-term negative effects of some of the superpowers action in the area that are contrary to the principles of international law and uh, are, con are in clear contradiction and breaching of the established confidence building mechanism in the Black Sea. Uh, I think that we should be more robust in line with a long-term vision and integrated without July uh, efforts in order to strengthen defense and deterrence on the eastern flank. I think we are welcoming the recent decision, which was taken by the Defense Ministerial of NATO, about establishing maritime cooperation framework. I think security in the region requires the need to avoid an ad hoc approach by NATO regarding its activities in the Black Sea. It's very important to be an open, transparent, and structured uh, operation, uh, cooperation of the NATO in terms of exercises in the area. Because, you know, what I have to underline, all these measures are defensive in nature, nature, are proportionate and fully in line with international commitments. This actually is a legitimate response to a deteriorating security situation. The respective measures should be considered an essential dimension of the Alliance role in dealing with the current challenges and threats. And, of course, what is the main mission, and mission of NATO, which is ensuring the collective defense of its member states. Uh, I think we should continue to provide an active support to partners in the Black Sea. When we speak about the Black Sea, maybe I talk too much about security, but we should speak about the security of the countries repairing to the Black Sea. And here I have to mention Ukraine, Georgia, Republic of Moldova. I think they are very important countries, and I think it's very important to, to 
uh, increase their resilience. I think the best investment we can make is in preventing the further deterioration of the situation and the emergence of new crises is increasing the resilience, investing in the resilience. And I think this is what we are doing as well. It's not only a security investment, this is a political investment. This should be as well sometimes a financial investment, like is the case with Romania and the Republic of Moldova about the financial support facility. Uh, we are, Romania, you know, uh, as a NATO ally uh, took its commitment serious, I think the, this year is going to be the first that we are going to meet the 2% defense budget spending. I think in the same time, this year we are going to have the 20 years of strategic partnership between Romania and the United States. I think that in the same time, Romania is trying you know, to use uh, the, uh, the other parts of the toolbox, like aid to the region in order to, you know, to stabilize and um, increase its contribution to helping the countries in need. I'm speaking here about the humanitarian aid, I'm speaking here as well about the action of the European Union towards in Ukraine and in other countries that need so much reforms and they need in the same time as well a structured approach to uh, supporting the citizens, their citizens in these difficult times. Uh, you know, Romania uh, welcomes that, you know, in the global strategy for the foreign and security policy adopted by the EU, is for the first time that we have a clear recognition of the importance of the area and the importance of the stability of Ukraine. I think that, uh, you know, this is proving that and showing that um, the situation in Ukraine is one of the greatest challenges for the all European security. And we are trying to do more to raise the EU awareness in the stakes, in the strategic stakes of the Black Sea. Uh, drawing upon the strategic priority of building the capacities of partners, you will offer expertise, expertise in the system to strengthen partners' resilience. I think, you know, another chapter we should mention is about trying to counter heavy threats. I think this is a way uh, between the, 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 I think we need more than that, you know, to uh, underline the direct link between security and stability and economic investment. I think there is a big need for this region to do more and to have more convergence and to try to catch up with the rest of Europe because this is a core part of Europe. I think it's very important that this region should, we showed the economic value of stability in a negative sense. So to say one of the reasons is not so developed is as well because of the insecurity in the region to to have security and in the same time to increase their economic growth. I think European policies which are making and changing are as well about engaging uh, with the countries. I should mention here, you know, the visa-free regime with Republic of Moldova that is already for two years in place. The upcoming visa-free regime with Georgia and Ukraine are very important pillars of EU policy trying to stabilize the situation and trying in the same time you know, to uh, to give uh, to give uh, a clear reference to our values, to our European values, and you know our Western values in terms of uh, stability and security in the way of behavior in international relations. Uh, I think that you know, uh, in uh, Romania was an active member in all any kind of regional cooperation. 
I think, you know, we understood that, you know, regional cooperation is not only a prerequisite for NATO membership or EU membership, is something that has to be a sequel of, uh, of membership. So you should conduct it not only with a view to get in the European club, but you should be part of your core values. And this is something that should be part of your action, should be based on cooperation and strengthening regional security. So this is just in a short, in short, what I wanted to say, you know, this is a, this, uh, this, uh, this subject is going to be touched upon by many of my other co-speakers in the panel. I think they're going to give you different angles, but in basically what I had to do more was about uh, security. So I'm looking forward to your questions and I'll try to take them from, uh, from the, the chair, because I think is, I think would make more relaxed for our discussion, and I think this not oblige my following follower, uh, following uh, speakers to come and uh, come and take the podium. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Want the questions? Mm -hmm. Are there questions for the minister, for Minister Chamblin? Please. And if, again, if you would state your name and affiliation, organization. Yes, my name is Russell King. I have a question about the Montreux Convention. I believe it was 1937, but it governs transit of ships between the, in the, through the Turkish Straits. And uh, by my best understanding, Black Sea nations have unrestricted passage through the, the, the Turkish Straits. And of course, Black Sea nations includes Russia, includes our three NATO allies in the Black Sea. But, but the United States and Britain, for example, cannot, are restricted in moving ships into the Black Sea. Is there any kind of imbalance that causes? And, and Russia with, with Ukraine can expand their shipping going to Syria, for example. Uh, through the Black Sea, and they have no restrictions. Is, there, is that a problem or not? Uh, in a way, you know, it's for the military ships, you know, for commercial ships, there is no, there is no uh, hurdle. You know, any kind of commercial ship can come and go in the Black Sea. This is the basic idea of the Montreal Convention. We've even sometimes, without needing to have special procedures like a special, like pilot or something, where, where it comes to the limited time that you could spend in the Black Sea, it's about military ships. And this is where the Montreal Convention has a very clear uh, terms. You know, of how long you could have a military ship that doesn't belong to the repairing states. Because if you are a repairing state, of course, you are free to keep your military ships as long as you like in the Black Sea. So it's mostly it's about commercial. I think, I think, you know, at the end of the day, actually in commercial shipping, I don't, I don't see there, I don't think there are so many British or American flags anyhow, because, you know, commercial ships tend to be registered in in other parts of the world, you know. <laughs> so, so, and this is, if you look on the traffic there on the Bosporus, you could see that many of this uh, commercial trade and uh, bringing oil, natural gas, and goods uh, to, not only to Russia, but to Ukraine, you know, is done by commercial ships that belong to to companies that are registered, you know, in foreign jurisdictions. Uh, yes, my name is Dick Kaufman. I'm a civilian. I don't have a I don't have an affiliation. 
Uh, I've worked for the U.S. government for quite a while and was in the Marine Corps before then. Um, interested civilian. Uh, you talked a lot about Ukraine. Um, what's, what is the position of your government regarding assistance to, to the government of Ukraine um, in light of Russian pressure there and, and uh, the fact that if, if, if the West doesn't become, in my view, more engaged with the government of Ukraine, the Russians will only not only consolidate their existing position, but exercise more influence over the government in Kiev. Thank you. You know, in a way, I think the major contribution that was done in terms of government of Ukraine, to be very frank, it was not an American one, but it was an European one. You know, signing the DCFTA agreement and the association agreement with Ukraine, I think, was, I think, one of the set uh, trend, you know, agenda setters in terms of the relationship, not only with the European Union, but as well with the U.S., because you had the reforms, and but you had as well the particular support that is given by a free trade agreement. And I think this this uh, was supposed to be a win-win in the same time to change the society, but in the same time to give the value added of free trade of Europe that could have a significant economic, uh, uh, could, could have a very significant Import, uh, economic dimension because this is about growing the economy and helping the people to do better. So I think this was the major thing that in a way, formally speaking, means a lot for Ukraine and not only for Ukraine, for all the three countries that are part of uh, signed the AA and the DCFTA which are Republic of Moldova and Georgia too. There's a question in the back. Um, Stanley Kober used to be at Hudson years ago. Um, I'm looking at an article from France 24, uh, just posted an hour ago. Quote the headline, Trump threatens to quit NATO, White House official. And they quote this White House official, evidently speak, speaking anonymously, but on the record. We'll either see real changes towards NATO or we'll try to form a different way of going about things. We don't want to be paying for everyone's defense. I could go on, but for reasons of time. So I bring that to your attention. This is the only place I've seen um, this story so far. So this doesn't, that doesn't make it very trusted. You know, it's <laughs> fake news. So if it's only in one place, I should not even bother to quote it these days. Uh, uh, Important to point out that in these unusual times, um, a lot of stuff appears on the web that on the internet that is, uh, I, I think the kindest thing to say is questionable. It was a it was a story last Sunday that uh, the president was about to fire all of his uh, staff, and it doesn't seem to have materialized. So I would. Uh, be skeptical. Please. Anyhow, it's not because of the Black Sea, be sure. 
Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Michael Kurtzig, formerly of the Department of Agriculture, worked on agriculture and economics of the Middle East and North Africa. Mr. Minister, would you for a moment discuss the impact of the refugee problem in the region? Has Romania welcomed the refugees uh, or rejected them? I don't, I don't know the situation. You don't hear so much about it. And what is their prospect, if you have them, what are the prospects in your country for these people? Thank you. You know, you know Romania is a new member. You know, the response to the refugee crisis was with the European toolbox and with the European policy. I think, you know, in the, I think Romania, we should not say if it welcomed or rejected the refugees. I think Romania is part, is part of the European Union and as, as a part of the Union is going to apply the policies that are decided, even if they agree or not, this is not important. I think we are going to be a honest member of the European Union. And by doing so, I think Romania is doing its part by taking refugees, lessening the burden of on all on all, on the other member states. You know, in a way, the refugee crisis didn't play such a big role on the Black Sea, I should say, because you know, refugee car, car, refugees and things are still asymmetric related issues. You know, so in in the Black Sea, you still hard to have you have hard security issues. I think you know so. In a way, this prevented, you know, if you have uh, warships, I think it's a lot more difficult to have both people, you know, moving from one side to the other, you know. So, in a way, uh, we were, uh, this one didn't play such a major role, but we, we have done our part, and I think we took a number of people from Greece and Italy, and of course, we are committed to doing our our part, because this, as I mentioned, you know, is part of our, you know, European mindset, and you know, to apply the decisions that are taken, you know, even if you don't agree, you, if you you have to apply them, because this is what is all about the union and the European law. I think we have time for one more question for the minister, and then we need to proceed because there will be other speakers and other questions. Jan Kotorczyk is my name. Uh, I'm the Deputy Chief of Mission with the Embassy of Bulgaria. I just wanted to... I don't think the mic is working. Uh, just a moment. Louder. Louder is... Dejan Kotorczyk is my name uh, with the Embassy of Bulgaria. I'm the Deputy Chief of Mission. I just wanted to, to point out that we share all the concerns about the militarization of uh, Crimea. And uh, we thank uh, for your support and uh, we are happy that we we've been coordinating with Romania so so closely we thank you for initiating the Bucharest uh, format which is a great uh, venue to coordinate our positions uh, so we for us it's never been um, the question should we especially for the naval uh, presence of NATO um, in the region um, for us, has never been the question: Should we uh, support this presence? But uh, to make it uh, uh, under the comment of NATO, so we are very uh, grateful for, for your support. Uh, we've been um, taking our measures to modernize our army, and we are fully determined to very soon to reach the two percent uh, threshold. Uh, if I may um, finish uh, with a question, uh, what's your assessment? Uh, how high is uh, the security of the Black Sea region? 
in the agenda of the current administration, if you had already meetings, and what could we do together to keep the focus on it? And by the way, thank you for the Hudson, to the Hudson Institute for highlighting this um, this topic. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much as well for the kind words. And of course, we are together in Bulgaria, and you know. When, I, when we are speaking, I'm not speaking only on behalf of us, we are speaking, you know, about the new strategic realities that means, you know, the NATO members, the repairing countries that are NATO members in the same time that are Romania, Bulgaria, and Turkey. So, and I think that when we speak about uh, security, as it's, you cannot divide security, I think, you know, it's like everybody is for all, and all are for each of us. And I think this is the this is the basic bottom line of NATO and the security. Uh, about the question, I think you know, it's very, you know it's a new administration. I think there are many issues which are you know, on the agenda. Where I'm happy to be here, you know, to as well to put the spotlight on the Black Sea. I think we are expecting, you know, in a way to have a revival of the importance of the issue, I should say, by, so to say, by tradition, Republican administrations have been very sensitive to the Black Sea area, I remember, and you know, do not forget that we had the first NATO summit on the shores of the Black Sea, which was in Romania, during President Bush. So I think there is an expectation that Black Sea would take its role. Of course, there is a complicated security environment that is not only referring to the Black Sea. There are many other areas that we speak these days, and they're in the news, be it about Syria, be it North Korea, you know, so so it's, uh, we are just, I think there, there was all the time interest, and there is an interest, because this is strategic importance, and this is what countries like Romania are bringing once they entered into NATO, you know, they brought the Black Sea a lot closer to the United States of America, and this is how we should look into it. Good afternoon. Um, I'm very honored to be here. I wish to thank you all for coming, uh, and I appreciate very much also the hosting and initiative of our of the Hudson Institute. Um, I will uh, try to focus your attention on a particular dimension of uh, security environment. When we talk about the security environment, people tend to focus almost exclusively on politics, geopolitics, and defense. But there is a crucial dimension I consider, which is energy security. And um, when we talk about energy security in the context of climate change, um, people, again, uh, keep their focus on renewable energy, green energy. We speak a lot about electric cars and solar panels and so on. But the truth is that the traditional, the conventional energy resources like crude oil, uh, natural gas, and coal, they're, they're here to stay for a long time. If we look at the European continent, from an energy security perspective today, and 
or better to say in the past decade, we have been facing three kinds of energy security threats, challenges. Of course, there are the classical threats, which are uh, even aggravated these days, like terrorism, weapons of mass destruction, regional conflicts, state failure, not in Europe, but in Europe's neighborhood, organized crime, climate change, and cybersecurity threats. Just last week, you know, there was this cybersecurity attack, and some factories in Europe, big manufacturing, actually shut down their production. Then there is the internal dimension of energy security, which in Europe uh, faces some challenges. If you look at the members of the European Union, each country has a different energy mix. Some rely on coal, some rely on nuclear, some tend to rely exclusively on renewable energy like Germany, but it's not the case yet. Then there, this triggers different import profiles. Some countries have to import much more natural gas. Having different import profiles combined with their geographical position makes some countries to have different foreign policies as compared to what should be of a common, a joint foreign policy of the European Union in energy security matters. Uh, we're trying to build an internal energy market in Europe, but this happens, unfortunately, at different speeds. And we're also confronted with uh, definitely onshore, we might still have some chances offshore in the Black Sea in the East Mediterranean, but on the onshore side, clearly Europe is confronted with a high rate of depletion of hydrocarbons. And uh, the attempt of various American corporations, super majors, majors, uh, some five years ago to drill for shale gas, unfortunately has failed. The third energy security challenge is the external dimension, which is extremely important. There is a true fact that the majority, if not almost all European member states, depend on one single supplier when it comes to natural gas. We know who that supplier is. Uh, but even though they depend on such one single supplier, there are different levels of interdependency between importers and that exporter. So this is a major challenge. And of course, I will not insist, it was uh, mentioned before, there is a difficult uh, geopolitical context now in Europe, and um, um, of course, everybody, as I said, is looking at defense and politics, but uh, putting somehow aside the energy issues. If you look at this chart, what is green, dark green, light green, is renewable energy. It's tiny. If you look at red, well, red is coal and oil. There's still a high rate of imports of coal and oil in Europe. And if you look at the blue, the light blue is non-Russian gas, but the dark blue is Russian gas. So we can all agree that there is a high dependency, uh, import dependency rate and consumption uh, dependency uh, in Europe uh, when it comes to hydrocarbons. But it's not only concerning hydrocarbons when it comes to dependency on one single supplier. 
Just look here. That's crude imports, and the Russian Federation leads uh, the group of exporters with 33%. These figures are from 2013. Um, if you look at gas, this is the highest dependency rate, where Russia holds 39%. But if I move to uranium to fuel our nuclear plants, again, Russia is one of the main suppliers with 18%. And coal, 29%. So today, Today, the situation is extremely complex. We have open conflicts in Ukraine. We have militarization of the Black Sea because of Crimea. We have, in our immediate neighborhood, Syria, we have an open, devastating conflict. We are facing hybrid warfare. We are confronted with those frozen conflicts that were mentioned before, which any time can become a hot conflict, Moldova, Georgia, Azerbaijan. There is migration because of Syria. We were not prepared to handle that. In the meantime, it seems that we managed to develop a, a joint European policy. We have terrorism. We thought that terrorism is a closed chapter for Europe 50 years ago. No, it's coming back. There is nationalism, a lot of nationalism and populism in, in, in Europe. Uh, of course, let's admit it, there is a certain breakdown of the social contract between politicians, and this is valid for, for the entire world. There is a, a certain breakdown of the social contract between politicians and their voters, and this automatically leads to populism and nationalism. And there is a raising Russian assertiveness in Europe. And uh, what was the response of our collective security organizations of the Western democracy? Well, we put troops there. We put military hardware. Uh, some people here in Washington say that it's very convenient for us because we don't pay a dime for it, but this is not true. Um, so we have military deployed in particularly in Central Eastern Europe at the borderland, but uh, how do we fuel that military force? In case of an open conflict, most probably, based on uh, strategic stockpiles, we would be able to fuel that military, military power for, I don't know, three months? Where do we take our fuel supplies? Or what happens with the countries that host such military forces? What happens if the gas is cut off? and people riot on the street because their, their homes are not heated. So, again, there's one single supplier. What's the solution? The solution is to diversify. But from where? Where through? And here I have to resort to ancient philosophers and I refer to Archimedes, who had a very uh, popular say, give me a lever and a fulcrum and a place to put it and I will move the world. Well, when it comes to energy security of the European Union, where do we put, where is that fulcrum? What's the alternative to 
Russian gas. Uh, let me be clear on this. Russia will remain a supplier, and it's good to have a good supplier like Russia. They have high volumes, but uh, there also have to be alternatives. Nobody's talking here about excluding Russia. Well, I think that Fulcrum would match perfectly in this area. And <clears throat> there's a reason for that. It's because here I have massive oil and natural gas reserves. I have them uh, in, in uh, Turkmenistan. I have them in Egypt. I have them in the Black Sea. I have them in the Kurdish area of Iraq. I have them in the Caspian Sea. Then in uh, Iraq, or, yes, uh, sorry, this is Iran, and this is the Kurdish Iraq. I have them in the East Met, Israel, Lebanon, Cyprus. But all these beautiful resources, they have to reach Europe. Through where? Well, it seems that if you use pipeline transportation, which is the most cost-effective, it can only be Turkey. So Turkey is strategically extremely important. It's the key player when it comes to European energy security. But the problem with Turkey is that it's neither a member of the EU nor of the um, uh, European energy community. So when it comes to uh, the legal regime of pipelines, Turkey does not have to observe EU regulations third-party access and unbundling. Uh, here you have a map with uh, um, existing pipelines, projected pipelines, pipelines that failed to be developed. Well, do the Europeans have an energy strategy? Well, on paper it looks absolutely marvelous. You can see here a list of entire programmatic legal instruments, treaties, and so on. Out of these documents, I would say that three of them were effective, in fact. One is the third energy package, which was, uh, which was regulated, approved in 2009, and which basically uh, um, made it mandatory to unbundle ownership of energy transportation networks so that companies like Gazprom cannot own at the same time production and transportation. And the second very important aspect that was enforced against Gazprom is third party access to that transportation network. You cannot ship 100% only your gas through that pipeline. You have to share it with others to create competition. Uh, but there was a major breakthrough after the Crimean crisis, which was reached in 2014, when, finally, the EU managed to approve some strategic documents on energy security. One is the European Energy Security Strategy, and the second one, which uh, in Europe we put a lot of hope in it, is the European Energy Union. I will not get into details uh, as concerns the contents of these documents, but each of them puts a weight on 
diversification. But if you set diversification of suppliers and supply routes as a political target of the European Union, you have to make member states to cooperate to achieve that. But if we look at member states, uh, at the first glance, it doesn't look like they're ready to cooperate for such purpose. Why is that? If you look at the horizontal axis, that is the percentage, the share of natural gas in the energy mix of member states. If you look, that's the horizontal axis. If you look at the vertical axis, it's the share of Russian natural gas in the national natural gas consumption of each member state. And the size of the circles uh, um, uh, provides for the volumes of imported Russian natural gas. Well, the biggest dot is the German dot, the Italian dot, the French dot, and the Polish one. Of course, it also comes to the size of each country. I mean, just look at the Czech Republic. It's quite a big dot, and the country is small. Actually, they're uh, dependent, I think, 99% on Russian gas. Well, this dependency level causes such member states to have different policy approaches, foreign policy approaches when it comes to uh, the Russian Federation. I have clearly a pro-Russian policy when it comes to countries like Cyprus, Greece, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. I try to, to group them, and the colors correspond to each such group. Then what is, this is the dark red group, the first group. Then there is a second group, some countries that we may call strategic partners of Russia. This is the light red. And here we have Germany, France, Italy, and surprisingly, Spain, who doesn't have much to do with Russia when it comes to natural gas, Spain. Then there is pragmatic, friendly cooperation on specific projects. This is yellow. And here we have countries like Austria, Belgium, Bulgaria, Croatia, Finland, Luxembourg, Malta, Portugal, Slovakia, and Slovenia. Then there is a fourth group, the, the, the green color, which I like to call pragmatic, distant, ad hoc cooperation. So trust is not yet there, but still we can work on specific projects. And these countries are Denmark, Estonia, Ireland, Latvia, Netherlands, Sweden, and the UK. And I'm proud that my country is part of the fifth group, which is blue. And here we have something that looks like really a Cold War relationship. And this is the smallest group. It comprises Poland, Romania, and Lithuania. So we speak here about different foreign policies of these countries. And I said, why is that? Because each of this country not naturally has a different interdependency level from its other European partner. And if we look at the interdependency uh, uh, regimes, we, have, we may claim that we have three types of interdependency in Europe when it comes to natural gas security. 
energy security general and natural gas in particular. In the relationship between Russia and the EU, we have a realist interdependence because there's a lot of geopolitics going on there. It's highly complex, but it's symmetrical because the, com uh, the power of each of the two one country and bloc are more or less similar. So they're symmetrical, they, they, they balance. When it comes to the relationship between Russia and Western Europe, its main client, Western Europe is the main natural gas client for, for Gazprom, we have a symmetrical interdependence again, but the vulnerability is higher on Russia. Why? Because Russia is so dependent on foreign investment coming from countries like Germany, France, and Italy. But still, there is a balance. Well, when it comes to Central Eastern Europe, it doesn't look good at all. These are not powerful countries. They just gained democracy and, and market economy 27 years ago. They are still linked when it comes to infrastructure to the Russian Federation. So these countries, when it comes to these countries, in their rapport with Russia, the interdependency is highly sensitive and unbalanced, asymmetrical. And when we have an asymmetrical relationship, then obviously the stronger party is not so eager to cooperate. You know, these are the European stars, and that's the big bear leaning on a valve. So, how does it look today? After the energy security strategy was approved at the EU level, uh, we started to, to work. But uh, there's also competition among EU members. And there's a competition of who should become a gas hub. Uh, although not many of them really understand what a gas hub means. But everybody's competing to become a gas hub. Then, because of financing issues, uh, it's not uh, the pace under which we develop new infrastructure, new transport uh, energy infrastructure, is very slow. Uh, there were successful LNG facilities developed in Poland and Croatia, but uh, that's it for the moment. It's, there's not a market for LNG in Europe, unfortunately. Um, we have a much more friendly Gazprom. They have uh, gradually waived those inflexible contractual terms like destination clauses. You, once you import from Gazprom, you were not allowed to ship your gas to a third party. Um, uh, they become more flexible in pricing terms. But it's not because suddenly Gazprom is a very, um, of, um, or should I say, um, is friendly, okay? It's because they want to gain more market share. And what happened in Romania, my country, thank God, is still uh, energy self-sufficient. Uh, on natural gas, uh, I think we depend on Russia for 15%. And last year, uh, the price that Gazprom offered during winter time, the price that Gazprom offered for its gas to Romania was cheaper than domestic gas. And we signed some short-term contracts. 
You know what they did in spring? They raised the price again. So, what we did is actually to diversify away, not from Russia, but from Ukraine, because we still have the same supply. Uh, if you look at maps uh, where the new pipelines are flowing now, are being developed now, the north and south, this looks like military tactics. I mean, take the north flank, take the south flank. Uh, not that commercial, I would say. Um, now, um, you're all aware that uh, Russia is um, uh, pushing hard to uh, not to have Ukraine anymore as a transit country for natural gas exports to um, Europe. Uh, there's, there's various reasons for that. The relationship uh, between Russia and Ukraine was uh, quite difficult in the past decade. We had a free gas crisis when Ukraine shut down the valve. Okay, commercial disputes, but we all can uh, say that uh, both of them, Gazprom and Ukraine, are not reliable. So uh, Russian, uh, Russian Gazprom was very open again and friendly trying to help their European partners and started developing new gas transport infrastructure. Oh, my God, okay. Uh, and there's two pipelines, one in the north, North Stream 1, and they're building Nord Stream 2. And there's one in the south, which they just obtained finance, and they're laying the pipelines, which is the Turkish Stream. Uh, if you put these two pipelines together because of capacity and how much gas is being transported, well, forget about Ukraine. Ukraine is out of the game. Here are some figures that demonstrate that once you have uh, a Nord Stream and Turkish Stream um, uh, working, forget about Ukraine. What is the problem with these two pipelines? They're not under EU regulations. Even though Nord Stream links Russia to Germany, they were claiming that since the pipeline runs through the exclusive economic zone, it should not be subject to EU regulation. Turkish Stream it's Turkey. Turkey is not a member of the European Union. The effect is that we still have a high concentration. I have to hurry up. We still have a high concentration of supply routes and sources uh, with Russia. Uh, these two pipelines, they will impact competition within the internal energy market in Europe. They will divide that market because Western Europe feels much more comfortable with Nord Stream than we in Southeastern Europe do feel with a pipeline running through Turkey. And most important of all, these, these pipelines will undermine any new investment. Who's interested to invest in a new pipeline with Azeri or, I don't know, Iranian gas when there's plenty of Russian gas in Europe? And this is my main point, another five minutes, please. Uh, we could find solutions if Europe and the U.S. would work more hardly, more intensive on the energy security uh, uh, dimension. And we have valuable precedents. You guys were in Europe when we built, we made the first step for the European Union, which was the coal and steel community. You guys, you brought NATO to Europe, which gave, uh, gave us comfort. We could develop wealth. You were involved in the Middle East, which secured oil to everybody. 
Today, you're securing the choke, po the choke, uh, choke points, maritime choke points, so that oil can flow freely and the critical energy infrastructure. You helped diplomatic and political help in building the main pipeline that fuels Europe with crude oil, which is the Baku Tbilisi Chehan pipeline. And you, we have, you have a framework with the EU, but something happened three years ago. The Nabucco pipeline, a major failure. And since then, nothing has happened in our relationship. I would make some suggestions, which is some sort of to-do list, what we should do to improve energy security of Europe and also foster the transatlantic security relationship. First and foremost, we should put energy security on our common agenda, US-EU. Maybe here in Washington, you should put European energy security on your, your strategic plan with the Department of Energy. Maybe you should include a word, a sentence in your uh, national security strategy. Maybe we should build some legal instruments. We had the opportunity with the TTIP, but it's suspended now. I think that should be recommenced. The process to conclude the TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment uh, Partnership Treaty, uh, uh, should be concluded. You should, uh, you and us, you should have an innovative approach on Turkey, which as I hope I demonstrated is crucial for both the EU and the United States. Encourage LNG exports, this doesn't change the game, but it's a sign because it's, it's not cost effective. Okay, it's cheaper to get gas from Russia than from the US, but still bring LNG to Europe because gradually, there will be a market share. So what we have to do is common efforts to make all these asymmetrical challenges that today's relationship between Russia and the EU, particularly Central Eastern Europe, have to, to improve that asymmetrical dimension. This is what we have to do. Um, as I said, Russia will remain a supplier, but we have to improve our energy security together with Russia and the United States. Thank you very much for your attention. That seems he wants me to go. All right, I'm the one. Too long. Um. Good afternoon from, from my side as well. Um, I'm more a historian, um, as I teach at the Faculty of History at the University of Bucharest as well. And I dedicate my researches to 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. Therefore, what we are talking about today basically falls in historiography, falls into the Eastern question, as we, uh, as we call it. Um, despite its, its relatively small size, uh, the Black Sea has generated an important number of, of conflicts all throughout history. And unfortunately, it has a very um, high and, and unpredictable future, just as has been shown uh, before. Um, uh, the smart things have been already said, so uh, it's, it's little uh, good for me or interesting for me to, to highlight. But I'll focus on, on two points. First is the fact that the Black Sea has seen all throughout history, a very conf conflictual um, environment. And second, 
is the fact that this conflictual uh, environment, ha it's still being fueled by the frozen conflict. Um, so, um, for most of its ancient and medieval history, the Black Sea has been always a constant and focal point for the struggle between the greatest naval powers at that time, and well, maritime and economic powers. But no power actually fully controlled the Black Sea until um, the Ottoman Empire defeated Venice and, and Genoa back in late, uh, late uh, 15th century. For, let's say, 300 years, the Ottoman Empire has been uh, poorly contested in, in the Black Sea. But that changed a lot when Russia, Russian uh, Grand Duchy and later uh, Russian Empire became closer and closer to the Black Sea. Actually, Moscow showed power towards uh, all of its neighbors. By the, mid by the middle of 18th century, um, the Russian expansion reached the shores of the Black Sea, and the, um, Grigory Potemkin, the, the favorite military officer of Catherine the Great, uh, sought to have a base on the Black Sea. Ever since, it became a focal point in the Russian political thinking. And I, if I would summarize, as a historian, the, the Russian political uh, thinking ever since, it had three main directions, or three main steps, so to say. First, it was to control Sevastopol and Crimea. That's, that's the essence. Without that, everything crumbles, first. Second is um, to rule the Black Sea to a certain extent, and if that is not possible, to fuel conflicts between the populations all around the Black Sea. And third, and that has been already highlighted as the, the star um, by, by my distinguished uh, co-panelist, to control the Straits. They come in a very clear order. And as I said, the history has, has shown this uh, clearly ever since. Um, by the middle of, of the 19th century, right, um, there were new kingdoms appearing at the Black Sea, and that's, that's when Romania and uh, at the beginning of the 20th, Bulgaria uh, became contestants to uh, the Russian power at the Black Sea. Obviously, they were no match to Russia. I mean, we, have to, we have to be frank about that. The World War I also did not change much. Romania became bigger after the World War I, but still there was no possibility to challenge uh, the Russian uh, force at the Black Sea. And um, still, despite the fact that it, it addressed uh, the challenges of the Eastern um, question after the World War I, the Montreux Convention, which has been already brought into discussion, is still valid today, but has a lot of, a lot of um, points that do not actually fit with nowadays situation. Under the Soviet rule, the uh, Crimean Peninsula, Peninsula and, and Sevastopol especially have become a leitmotiv for um, the struggle against the West. And uh, you could see this in the Soviet propaganda and later, right, as a reminiscence of the past, these motives being resurrected by, by, uh, by Russia. Um, the dismemberment of, of the Soviet Union actually did not change the, the, the power um, distribution, so to say, around the Black Sea, as the former Soviet republics did not have the capabilities to match uh, Russia. And we've heard about 
the Black Sea uh, Economic Cooperation Organization. Obviously, it was it was a mechanism to reunite all the countries uh, around the Black Sea, but unfortunately, it was impossible for it to work because Russia could not actually negotiate with its former dominions on an equality uh, position, but rather, you know, showing its superiority. Um, what the fall of the Soviet Union, and with this I'm, I'm going to the second point, uh, has brought, uh, it's been the uh, many undetonated bombs uh, in the area better known as the frozen conflicts. The population swaps uh, have been a constant policy of the Russian Empire and later of the Soviet um, leaders, so that the mix of the population would make it hard to actually make it split. And we can see this uh, very clearly now. By managing carefully the frozen conflicts in the Black Sea uh, area, Russia ensured its, its dominance in the region and the capability to actually control all these populations. One very important thing uh, that I would like to mention here is that many of the small populations around the Black Sea, um, they have been for almost 300 years under the Russian or Soviet rule. So actually, the, the leaders in Moscow learned very well how to deal with each one of them and to play them against each other, which is very, very interesting. Obviously, one of the biggest beliefs in the West was the fact that by, after the 90s, uh, Russia lost its position for good. But obviously, it was not the case. And I think, despite probably despite the, the, the general um, ideas of some of my uh, fellows, I think that by managing so well the conflicts around its border, right, the frozen conflicts, made Russia a lot more confident with its own security dilemma and um, way more prepared to discuss, to negotiate diplomatically with the West. Um, obviously, all these frozen conflicts, and uh, if we can have the map on, on frozen conflicts, that's number five, I think. Nope. Um, next. Uh, no, before. <laughs> right, this one. Right, so that when we, when we have them, it's very, very interesting to uh, look at them, right? So we had, we had the ones um, from between Azerbaijan and Armenia in Nagorno-Karabakh. We had uh, South Ossetia and uh, also Abkhazia. We had Transnistria. But from 2014, we have new frozen conflicts. So, you know, we, were, we, we tend to believe that the frozen conflict number, at least, would stop and would decrease. But unfortunately, they, they don't. They actually increase the number of the frozen conflict. Uh, most of the people say, right, it's, it's not much. But let me tell you that the surface of the Crimean Peninsula and the two republics, Luhansk and Donetsk, they are the size of Estonia. So basically, the size of a country has been, well, now it's ruled by a foreign power. It's not ruled by the, 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 the rightful central authority in Kiev. Um, more, moreover, I would like to say uh, that uh, the process of, of settling the frozen conflicts becomes harder and harder with the fact that there is a generation already that has been raised in the, um, uh, in the, 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 the mindset of a frozen conflict. So all the young people 
um, born in Transnistria, right, uh, the, the frozen conflict in Republic of Moldova, in Abkhazia, in South Ossetia, in North Nagorno-Karabakh, they have been already used with this mindset. So they know they are part of a different entity, even though it's, 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 it's the same. It's a state, basically. Um, so it's becoming actually harder for the states to reunite with these with these territories. Moreover, the leaders in these rebel uh, entities, they want to show, especially Moscow, that they are already ready to govern new countries. So they have their own small country, and they are actually capable of ruling the country, which, is, which makes, obviously, the reunification, so to say, a lot more harder. What can we do when we have such a, such a challenge? Well, I think that one of the the, the main things that we can try is to um, ensure, and His Excellency uh, uh, Mr. George Chamba pointed out, the concept of resilience, basically to, to make sure that we increase the resilience of the countries that deal with frozen conflicts so that we, they become a lot more um, appealing to the people living in the rebel, rebel areas. Because when you make Ukraine um, capable of, of, of modernizing, economically thriving. Obviously, a lot of people from Lugansk and Donetsk will see, will realize that it's a lot better to, to, to live uh, in a country that is, well, is becoming more prosperous and is, is going to the West than living in a sort of a political limbo. Uh, but with this, obviously, NATO should, should become and should be closer to uh, the EU. Because um, probably some of you will not agree with me, but I think, and it might sound idealistic, but I think that 2017 might be the first best year of the EU. Because 2016 obviously was a very hard time for the EU. Right? But um, there were several exams, so to say, of the EU this year, and they, they passed, which, which, which is good. Um, and I think with the elections in, in France and obviously also the ones coming in, in Germany, we might have leaders that have the same mindset and would make the EU move faster and stronger uh, on, um, uh, on, on European integration. Um, and looking to the history, and I, I'll, I'll summarize with this, um, I would like to say at the end two things. First, we should not see Russia everywhere and in anything. Many of the things, obviously, come from us. And we shouldn't see Russia, I mean, to overestimate Russia. Because given the history, history I can tell you right, right before the First World War, and that's my, my exact field of, of, of uh, um, interest, uh, I can say that there was a general overestimation of Russian capabilities, and the war showed. Right? Um, I don't think that we should underestimate Russia. We should call Russia for dialogue, obviously, because whatever Russia thinks, Russia is also part of Europe. And obviously, the historiography had a, a big debate if Russia is part of Europe, is part of Asia, if it's something different. So I don't, I don't get into theoretical uh, abstract concepts. But I, can, I see Russia being part of Europe. And um, that, that's, that's something that we, uh, we have to take into consideration. Obviously, I see a lot of uh, tendencies in Russia now to follow what, they, what it's, it's called um, postmodern approach, 
for the international relations. Therefore, one of the key concepts of it is the transactionism. So basically, you can't you can make transaction with anyone at any time. So today, we, I, I make a transaction with you against the other. The other day, I make with the other against you, and so on and so forth. That might actually play against Russia at some point. So I don't think that actually Russia wants that. Um, and the second thing, obviously, that um, um, I would like to point out is the fact that with a deeper and stronger uh, NATO and increasing confidence um, of all the members in the area, in each other's, uh, in each other, I think there won't be any Crimea or any other, I don't know, Luhansk or Donetsk or. So I think it's basically up to us, and I think, as I said, that Russia is European at the end of the day and will continue to remain European because some of the things that it does, they don't play for Russia. More, moreover, and with this, I will just stop here. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I'm very honored and uh, happy to be here with you. And uh, first of all, let me thank uh, all the uh, our guests and hosts uh, and uh, everyone that is uh, uh, putting a lot of efforts in having this uh, possible. Um, actually, let me uh, give you a very brief presentation where we come from. We come from a country that 27 years ago, it was a bloody revolution. It was the only country in Eastern Europe that started with a bloody revolution to change into democracy, a regime that was very brutal to us. And uh, so at that time, it was very, very complicated years. Uh, and I actually come from Timisoara, where the revolution started 27 years ago. It was all surrounded the tanks waiting for the order from Ceausescu to bomb the place. And for one week, the town was free of communism. And only after that, when the revolution spread, starting in Bucharest and in other places of uh, the country, we were really free from the communism. But the feeling that we had at that time, because here I want to face something that is very important nowadays, the feeling that we had at that time, it was that Russia is the one that put us through the communism for so many years. Although it was uh, with the blessing of different other powers, uh, but uh, it was very, very complicated for us. And I, I was just a teenager at that time. And along with my family, we went to Moldova. And as soon as we went into Moldova, uh, it was very interesting to us because it was like getting into heaven. It was paved roads, nice cities, everything in the shops. In Romania, no lights on the streets, no roads, nothing in the shops. Three months later, we went back there. And it was dark, nothing in the shops, everyone saying all the resources are gone. Because we gave toward Russia, without counting, energy, food, everything. So at that time I said, well, it's game over. And Cosmin mentioned that. It's game over. Russia will never get out of this. But later on, getting into politics, I realized that I never say, will say never again. So things had changed. We passed through 27 years of transition, very complicated years. We've seen a lot of things going on. We started to consolidate our democracy, our institutions. Everything we started to work hard on, you know, everything we have right now, but 
Um, I just want to get closer to the nowadays reality. About five years ago, I remember speaking with members of Congress, of U.S. Congress and U.S. Senate, telling us, you are under a major risk of destabilization in the region. I said, us, no. We have a very anti-Russian feeling in Romania. We have a very pro-American and pro-Western European feeling in Romania. We have a language barrier because we are the only island of Latin language in the, in the region. All, all around us is Slavic. And so the Russian propaganda is not possible to take place in Romania because we have all those issues that will block them. But later on I realized that they use different tricks in promoting through our policies, economical conquers, energy, and we just heard about that. And we can name a long list of things which they can use right now to destabilize the region. It was very complicated to go through other Eastern European countries and see there how things are happening in the wrong direction. Um, just spoke last uh, week uh, after a TV talk show with the mayor of Chikishinov. I use again Moldova. And uh, of course, communists got back the power there through the president. Um, they got again very good acquainted with the president Putin. He was the only military, he was the only chief of state sitting near Putin a week ago at the uh, Moscow parade. Uh, military parade that was taking place over there. Um, things are not good in the region because what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in Serbia, Macedonia, all the other countries around us in the Balkanic countries. Uh, you know what's going on in Turkey. So I don't want to go again over those issues, but they are huge preoccupation and concerns that we have right now. Unfortunately, when I say unfortunately, because there's the truth, we don't want to be so, but unfortunately, Romania is the only island of peace of stability in the region. We have a consolidated democracy, and I'm saying this as a politician in the opposition. We have right now a free market economy trying to get it uh, in a better position. And uh, we try to do our best to prove that uh, not only personal security, and I just want to add something uh, here. Um, I have no problem walking a tree a night on the street. In some other places in the world I do have a problem to walk a tree a night on the street. But national-wise, we have a good security, secure borders, still under the pressure of the countries around us. We took the decision to go from 1.2 GDP, all the parties in Romania, signed under the president of Romania, a treatment, an agreement, to go from 1.2 GDP to 2% for the defense spending, which is very important for us, heavy on us, but very important for us. We took the responsibility, and I'm also sitting on the NATO delegation, we took the responsibility of protecting, cyber-protecting Ukraine, which is very important also under the cyber attacks that had been taking place in the last 
few hours and days. Uh, we are very eager to uh, stand strong in our NATO and US partnership. And here I want to thank you for being such a good partner to us. And we know that if you make a, a poll in the countries in Europe, you'll find out that one of the most pro-American feelings in Europe is in Romania. Lots of young people speak very good English. Um, and we know that right now US is our good partner. Why I'm saying that is that we face and we are uh, very preoccupied of different things that are nearby us. And of course the Black Sea is one of the seas that we haven't much pay attention up to Crimea. But when Crimea was uh, conquered again by the Russians, Romania was the first country to name this as an aggression. And then it was taken the term from other countries and at the EU level. So knowing all of those things, we are again preoccupied of different things around us. But we know that problems like the conflicts that were presented are also our problems. Uh, I met yesterday with former Congressman Frank Wolf, who told us that he recently visited Nigeria. And he said, well, uh, there were like one million immigrants going to Western Europe and almost destabilized the region. But you know, in Nigeria, they are the most tough um, ISIS, uh, Boko Hamram, and many other terrorist organizations present over there. Do you know how many people are in Nigeria? 180 millions. If the conflicts will go out of control, imagine what means to go five, six, seven, ten millions people over the sea into Europe. And that's a preoccupation. That's something that we all should look into it. Just to mention that we have many threats around us. We are near Moldova with an uh, open conflict. We are near Ukraine with an open conflict. We have the former COP in Turkey. We have the conflicts in the uh, former Yugoslavia countries. So those things are something that we have to all share. And that's why for us, NATO, our partnership are very important. Thank you so much. Uh, we do have time for some questions, um, and the, I ask you the same that I did a few moments ago. Please say your name and with whom you're affiliated, if so, and um, uh, which speaker your question is addressed to, and please form the question in the form of a question. With that, floor is open. Well, I see a hand over here. Oh, it is. Okay, good. Yeah, it is. Uh, good afternoon. I want to thank you for the great presentation. 
my first question is, can you encourage every speaker who comes to Hudson to have a great presentation like that, that visualizes the concept, because that really helped. And so thank you for that. The second question, are there other forms of energy? I realize that natural gas is uh, very greatly controlled by the Russians, and I believe the Germans have even made concessions to the Russian government because of that. Some people have implied that there has been some influence as far as the German government is concerned. But is there other forms of natural resources that the Russians have a chokehold on, or is there forms of energy that European, uh, that are germane to European or to the other uh, waterways that can be controlled or can be substituted for natural gas? Yes, thank you for the question. Well, um, um, we, uh, in Europe and within the European Union, we are very much uh, focused now and, and a lot of subsidies are being promoted uh, to encourage the development of renewable energy. Unfortunately, uh, the uh, subsidy schemes that have been used were not that effective. So eventually, the price of power increased on the consumer bill, which uh, set back the entire industry. So yes, there is clearly a, um, uh, an attempt to um, diversify away from natural gas by using power uh, from renewable resources, but it's, it's a long way ahead. Um, other uh, transportation routes for uh, uh, natural gas, um, other than Russian gas, well, uh, there is the Atlantic, of course. You have plenty of gas here, but uh, there are people here saying that if we start exporting our gas, and we have the same discussion in Romania, it's our gas, we should keep it here. Uh, if you start exporting natural gas to Europe, then the price would increase here. I think personally think that at the production rates that you do have in the United States for natural gas from shale and um, shale oil, uh, I think that there's plenty for uh, plenty of uh, hydrocarbons to export without dramatically increase prices here. Um, as regards uh, our routes. Uh, as I pointed out, most of them, because of uh, the source, which is in the Caucasus mainly, uh, most of them have to cross Turkey. Uh, of course, uh, when it comes to Iran, which is uh, in top five global uh, hydrocarbon producers, um, you could use uh, alternative routes, uh, LNG mainly, uh, but you have to um, um, you have to uh, uh, direct your ship all along the Arabian Peninsula through the Suez Canal, which is extremely um, expensive. Um, of course, uh, there can be some transport infrastructure pipelines built from uh, countries like Egypt or Israel uh, or Lebanon once those uh, uh, huge discoveries are, are becoming commercial. One of them already uh, is, uh, Tamar. Um, but uh, we speak about, uh, I think, a decade until we might have such kind of pipeline, pipelines avoiding Turkey and shipping uh, uh, crude and natural gas to Europe. Um, 
I think that EastMed will remain a regional market. Um, I'm not very optimistic about those countries, uh, Israel and Lebanon, uh, agreeing to, to jointly uh, develop uh, uh, critical inf infrastructure for transportation. So I think that they, they will just use it regionally. I, I, I hope I was able to answer your questions. Mike. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, name is Versario, formerly from the Department of Commerce. My question is, uh, what has been, could you elaborate on what has been the impact of the $50 or under oil price on Russia? The economic impact. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, it did affect uh, the global industry. Um, Indeed, it's it's uh, it's pretty tough for Russia, uh, and it's not only the, the the oil price, but it's it's also the fact that energy consumption uh, decreased in Europe, because still Europe is their main client. Uh, I'm also surprised how, on the in the context of such a low oil price, um, how you can still finance military expenditure. It's, it's absolutely amazing. I think that they're, they're, they're using uh, whatever they, they had as, as financial resources to do that. Um, uh, it's very difficult for Russia because such a low oil price is withholding new energy projects. It's very expensive to, uh, to develop new reserves. It's very expensive to uh, build uh, new energy transport infrastructure, and I, I, I bet that the financial effort uh, for building Nord Stream and Turkish Stream is, is uh, tremendous, but they have to do it, because without the European market, they shut down the light in Russia itself. So I, I think that the, the impact is, is, is really significant. Um, and uh, as it turns out, uh, it's on the medium term, because I... I do not see that oil price going back again to those fantastic levels of 100 to 120. Probably we will be at around stable at around between 60 and 80, according to some analysts. Oh, Corina Rebeja, Center for European Policy Analysis. Very good to see you again, and thank you for your remarks. Two days ago at the National Endowment for Democracy, we discussed a report about Russian influence um, through energy deals, mainly in Central and Eastern Europe. And one of the issues we looked at was the potential that Romania might become a direct competitor of Russia uh, through its offshore uh, gas resources provided that interconnectors with Bulgaria and Hungary uh, mainly will be finalized and that we get connected to the Brua project um, pipelines. How likely, my question is for, um, for Lorenzo Pacchio, how likely uh, is it that Romania might become a, uh, a credible competitor for Russia as a gas exporter in Europe? Um, and secondly, how would you assess the risk that Russia might forcefully try to preempt um, that from happening um, via, you know, a lot of uh, um, actions, uh, mainly in the Black Sea. And then if I may, uh, uh, 
quick question for um, for Cosmin and uh, Benoni. What would you think are the main, let's say, three direct th threats that uh, the Kremlin uh, or Moscow is posing to Romania? Let's say, you know, it can be cyber maybe or in the information space, uh, maybe militarily in the Black Sea. Thank you very much. Thank you for the question, uh, Corina. It's good to see you again. Uh, if Romania would become an exporter, yes, we might become an exporter, um, but not a uh, that kind of exporter that would uh, shake markets. Okay. Uh, probably uh, we will, uh, and we, we will balance uh, the distribution of gas or short-term gas supply to our neighboring countries, uh, Bulgaria, uh, Greece going down, uh, Hungary, and, of course, Moldova. Uh, what Russia is doing, uh, I can tell you, I'm, I'm, uh, my day-to-day -day business is, is being a corporate lawyer, and I act for uh, energy companies. Uh, I can tell you that from the beginning of this year, there was not one week without something going on in government, in parliament. Uh, I don't say it's Russia, but whatever happened was clearly in the advantage of a competitor. There's not one week passing without something going on that aims at blocking the industry, blocking pipe, new pipelines like Brua, like uh, 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 two days ago in Parliament. Uh, there is one member of Parliament who uh, passed a law, who made made an amendment to a, a draft bill, uh, concentrating the entire trade of domestic natural gas on one single market, which means that you cannot export. Who would benefit of that? I'm not accusing that member of parliament, but uh, who's the who's the benefit for? So some things do happen. As I said, it's alarming that they happen on a frequent, regular basis. At, uh, at the beginning of, no, at the end of last year, there was a, a report made public uh, by the Romanian Court of Audit, which is a sort of body that uh, controls government agencies about their spending, Curta de Contus, and they issued a report claiming that uh, oil companies, Romanian oil companies, have miscalculated uh, the oil royalty, what, what they have to pay to the government, because they, uh, we have a different system. It's not like in the United States. You develop uh, natural resources based on a concession, a, le a lease, uh, which is granted by the government. And for that right, you have to pay a percentage to the government. And they were claiming that uh, the, uh, the oil companies did not calculate well uh, and the agency, uh, the government agency, miscalculated the royalty. It turned out to be that the court claimed that oil companies should pay uh, past royalties, ba the balance of it, of $1.5 billion. I mean, this is retroactive, okay? But they made a story out of it, and it was all in the press. Then there is populism when it comes to natural resources. 
throughout the entire Romanian media, you see every day someone saying that this is our natural gas, we should keep it there, my God, uh, or if, uh, if we take it out, we should use it for our own uh, consumption. Um, like, uh, even if it's our gas and you, you would use it on the domestic, or crude, and you would use it on the domestic market, what do you do? You, sh you share it free to the entire Romanian population? You, you, you send a, 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 a big bottle of uh, gasoline to every Romanian citizen free every month? I mean, people don't understand how it works with natural resources, and they're easily uh, to be manipulated. And I, I don't put the blame on Russia for doing that. I don't know, it could be. But uh, we always like to say that the greatest enemy in Romania is Romanians themselves when it comes to such kind of, of projects. I hope I answered your question. All right. All right. Uh, so on, on, on uh, the second question, thank you for uh, that, because actually it opens up the possibility to tackle to a different uh, point. So if we are uh, talking about the three main threats coming from Russia, uh, I, I think um, that not in, in order of importance. I'm just uh, pointing out them. First, it would be energy, and Laurentiu uh, has already pointed out, and not in terms of competition, but when you also think about drilling and offshore um, uh, exploration, you might have Russian interference in the process. That's, that's definitely not something that we should avoid. Think about. Uh, second is the information war, and I think you've done a wonderful job in, in uh, assessing uh, such a threat on Romania. Uh, we are used to think that we are basically invulnerable when it comes to uh, Russian um, propaganda, but I wouldn't be, we wouldn't agree with that. I think we are very uh, vulnerable and we have to make sure that we are as resilient as we can. Actually, this um, um, well, winter, beginning of, of spring, I, I have noticed a lot of interest from the Russian uh, sources on the Romanian political developments, which, would, which, is, which is quite unique, because you didn't have that before. It was about foreign policy, but not about internal politics of Romania. And that showed, I mean, and the titles in the Russian uh, media, it's something like, the developments at our border um, um, concerns us, which is, yeah. And third, and I will focus a bit more on this, is the military one. Because what Crimea has become in the last uh, two and a half years, it's, it's, it's a real danger for, for everyone uh, that wants to look carefully at it. Uh, you have an array of military capabilities already in place, and they are increasing day by day. For instance, if we can have the, the, the figure number three, uh, this one, there, these are some just some military um, um, figures on what was before the annexation of Crimea and what has has been done um, since until 2016. But I was reading some reports in in Russian about uh, the fact that at the moment there is there are several pr projects that are being developed. One of them is um, to release the uh, famous uh, 
missile um, S-500, which is still in project, but would actually reach distances of uh, around 600 kilometers. This information is also um, brought into the report. Moreover, the Russian uh, military forces develop at this moment some projects that are done with a, a different uh, set of materials. So basically, they would completely change the landscape of defenses for most of, of most of the countries that are at the uh, flank of uh, NATO. Um, so I think that shouldn't be shouldn't be at all um, avoided. We've we've heard obviously from reports that there are a lot of planes uh, from the Russian um, uh, Black Sea Fleet that come very close to the Romanian uh, uh, shore, which is obviously well, it's not a threat because they don't do anything, but it's just you know is the, is a threat is there. I mean, and you can you can actually feel it. Sorry if it's make it long. If I may add to uh, to answer Karina and connect it to what Kosmin just said, uh, the situation in the Black Sea is uh, is quite critical. Uh, so there is a huge potential that something might happen there, and it did happen. And we made a lot of fun out of it. Uh, <laughs> uh, three weeks ago, a uh, ship that, that was transporting sheep from Romania hit a Russian reconnaissance uh, boat. Uh, I, that was really fun, but if something like this happens again, then you might have a conflict. If, for instance, uh, oil and gas operations on the Romanian coast, uh, on the Romanian offshore uh, part of, of the Black Sea, because today, de facto, we are rushing, uh, neighboring Russia in Crimea. If, I don't know, there is one drop of oil of, I don't know what, uh, dropping in the Black Sea, the Russians can make an environmental claim about it and send, I don't know, dozens of military patrol boats to, that could endanger operations over there. What would be the next step that you would have to pursue? Well, I have a dispute with my new neighbor with whom I do not have any treaty just a friendship treaty from the 90s. Uh, well, I go to the UN. Let's have a dispute to the International Court of Justice. Uh, who would enforce that decision, that ruling of the International Court of uh, Justice? The UN Security Council. Who is in the UN Security Council? It's Russia. So it's a vicious circle. But let's hope that we will not get to that point. I, very briefly, I want to add something here. I'm a politician. I, I operate, you know, with uh, having votes from people and trying to get back into the seat and things like that. So I very much take into account their perception. Uh, in this hybrid world that Russia is playing right now, we have to take into account the psychological world that they are doing. And they speculate very much the feelings of the people. That's why they try to speculate nationalistic, the conservative, all sorts of other feelings that the people will have in different uh, countries, including Romania, to have to create an anti-West, anti-US type of feeling. And that's very, very important to, to, to look into this perspective because they try every single angle to do it. Although they don't have the meanings of the direct propaganda as they do in the, uh, uh, in the countries like Moldova and East Flank where they penetrate with the Russian language, in Romania no one understands this. So, but 
have, they have this speculation of the, the feelings of the people and say, well, see the West, how it is, you know, degradated and things like that. So that's, that's the type of word that they are playing in Romania very hard. Thank you. It's uh, six minutes past two, and this conference was scheduled to go from noon until two o'clock. So uh, I'm going to I have the reluctant job of uh, telling you that time's up. <laughs> however, however, um, if our three remaining guests are willing, and uh, you can continue the discussion afterwards with them for a few minutes, I'd like to thank you all. Thank you. Lorenzo, uh, Ben, Kazmin, uh, for uh, and absent uh, uh, George Chamba, who had to go off to the hill for uh, an exceptionally stimulating and interesting conversation this morning, this afternoon, and uh, you for your patience and good questions and attention. And uh, I'd also like to point out, uh, remind you again, that uh, the reports that Hudson has uh, written together with the New Strategy Center are available on your way out, and that this will not be the last um, in, this, in these conferences, and we look forward to seeing you again in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.